Last week, we finished our study of 1 Corinthians in the evening service, uh, made it the whole way through 16 chapters of that epistle, and I trust that God has used it in our body to build us in our relationship to the Lord. Uh, This morning and evening, uh, we're going to perform a two-part study on mission in the New Testament, especially uh, for both the morning and the evening service, we'll be in the last half of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at verses 5 through 7, and we're going to consider Paul on mission in the city of Thessalonica. Of course, Paul planted the church in Thessalonica. He was there for about three weeks or so, and God did outstanding things. We read about that in Acts chapter 17 in the scripture reading we already looked at. But Paul's time in Thessalonica was amazing, so I thought it'd be good for us as a church to look at Paul on mission. How did Paul evangelize a new city like Thessalonica? And verses 5 through 7 will be Paul's uh, memoirs of that time, just, very, just a few verses where he recalls what God did when he went and planted the church in Thessalonica. This evening we'll be looking at church on mission, and we'll see how the Thessalonians responded, a church was formed, and how that church also shared the evangelistic heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. So we see the church on mission, verses 8 through 10. I would invite you to come back this evening at 5 o'clock to hear that one. Now, when someone speaks of a believer living life on mission, of what do you think? When someone speaks of a believer living life on mission, what do you think of? Um, One of the ways I think we can answer that question is we might think of that believer or those Christians uh, being willing to fulfill the great commission given by Jesus at the end of the Gospels, being willing to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to go and to share the gospel, to evangelize and disciple people around them. And we know that Christians, of course, do this for the glory of God. But we might also think of a believer who is more concerned when he goes down to the mall about souls who need Jesus than he would be any of the deals that are down there, any of the, you know, the dresses, the clothes, the lines at the checkout counters. A believer who's living life on mission is probably more overwhelmed by the number of people that he would interact with at the mall who need a savior, Jesus Christ. Perhaps we might think of a Christian who gets overwhelmed when driving through major cities. There have been a few times in my life when I've been overwhelmed in driving through a major city. It wasn't because of the traffic necessarily, although that has happened. But there are times uh, in my life where I've looked around, I've seen the buildings, seen all the houses, and I just think of the millions and millions of people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior in these cities. A Christian living on mission sees a drunken man or a homeless person not as a hopeless nuisance, but as a potential convert and disciple for Jesus Christ. When a Christian on mission interacts with his neighbors, he does so in a strategic way, and he loves to tell them about how Jesus came to save him and to save them. When this type of believer is at work, she finds herself getting often to sharing her faith in God in her conversations and making it known that Jesus has saved her from her sin. The other day I was at the car wash uh, in the local area here, and I was hoping to share the gospel with someone. As I got out of my car, I was talking with a middle-aged man who was preparing to wash my car. 
I'll say that I had a very short conversation with him, and as we were closing that conversation, he instructed me, but uh, among other things, to have a blessed day. I've heard that more down here in the South than I ever heard it in Minnesota. Have a blessed day. And so uh, as a result of him sharing those words with me, it just kind of struck me. And even in some of the conversation, I, I thought, I might be dealing with a believer here in Jesus Christ. And so I asked him, I said, are you a Christian? And we then got into a very long conversation about his, his vibrant faith in Jesus Christ, his love for Christ, and the opportunities that he has in his workplace to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. While living life on mission may be more than saying, have a blessed day, I think this man's short word of testimony was impacting to me and showed me that he loved Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look specifically about how Paul lived on mission when he evangelized the city of Thessalonica. And in verses 5 through 7, I see two aspects of Paul's mission to the Thessalonians. In verse 5, I think Paul is emphasizing the nature of his mission in Thessalonica. Look with me in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Now in this verse, it becomes obvious that when Paul came to the city of Thessalonica, he was not by himself. He planted this church with some other apostolic laborers. But here in this passage, he's recalling that time with them, and he describes that when he was with them, he proclaimed the gospel. You see that? For our gospel did not come only in word. So as we consider Paul on mission, Paul's mission in every city revolved around proclaiming the gospel of Christ. So whether he was in Corinth or in Thessalonica or Berea or Athens or Ephesus, he communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we're learning from Paul in the school of mission, the first thing we need to realize is this should mark our lives as well as believers on mission who are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Before we get too far into verse 5, let me ask you this question Do you get to the gospel with others? Or do you stop short, hoping that they'll receive the gospel in some other way? Maybe by just like looking at you or something. Do you share the gospel in your conversations, or do you stop short? The apostle Paul, he's describing his church plan. He says, for our gospel came to you. Now, he describes it further in four ways in verse 5. I just want to quickly work through these in verse 5. He first says that when his gospel came, it came with words. It came with words. It it did not only come in words, but it came with words. Here, Paul is just covering something that should be very obvious to to us, and that is words matter. Paul's methods in mission included spoken verbal testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words... He opened his mouth and he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. And I want to suggest that this was Paul's normal practice as a follower of Christ. He would open his mouth and he would tell others of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior who came, lived, died, and rose again for their sins. I think one of the reasons this was the case for the Apostle Paul is because he had deep faith 
in the gospel. And he could not help but open his mouth and speak. One of my favorite verses on Paul's evangelistic fervor in all of the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 4.13. Might just write that down. I'll read it to you in a moment, but 2 Corinthians 4.13. In that passage, Paul's explaining why he keeps getting into trouble, why he keeps going to prison, why he keeps getting beat up, why he keeps being persecuted for the cause of Jesus Christ. And when asked to defend it with the Corinthian assembly, this is Paul's answer. He said, but having the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. And then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, I believed, therefore I spoke. That's the Old Testament quote. It comes right out of the Psalms. The psalmist said, I had faith, therefore I spoke. Paul says, following after that quotation, 2 Corinthians 4.13, he says, We also believe, therefore, we also speak. So for Paul, as he's answering, Paul, why do you keep getting thrown into prison? Why do you keep getting persecuted? Why do you keep getting uh, hammered on for your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ? Paul says, well, God has given me faith. And that faith leads me to speak. And when I speak for Jesus Christ, normally it results in persecution. And the cycle repeats. The end of the persecution, God gives me faith, and I speak, and, and I'm persecuted for the cause of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul could not squelch his witness no matter how hard he might try, because he had a hearty faith in Jesus Christ that enabled him to open up his mouth and say things about it. In other places, Paul reminds us it's through human obedience that people hear the gospel. Think of Romans 10 and verse 14, where Paul says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher or someone proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think Paul understood that the salvation of others, whether in our neighborhoods or the nations, required the willingness of believers to use words. To use words. We must speak the gospel if the lost are going to be converted. <laughs> so it seems like a simple case. Just such a simple point. Paul recalling the Thessalonian experience. He says, first of all, for our gospel did not only come to you in words, uh, but yet... It's a profound point, I think, for Christians in America today to hear. We must use words to proclaim the gospel. But then he adds to that something else. He says it did not only come in words, but it also came with power. With this sort of structure that not only but also, Paul is not stressing human agency but divine power. He insists, as he reflects upon those three weeks in Thessalonica, it's been some time since he was there, but he insists that the gospel came accompanied with supernatural power in the Thessalonian community. By themselves, of course, our words are ineffective. They will lead no one to the Lord. But words accompanied by the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ will change lives. So it's like, my part is the words. God's part is all the hard stuff. 
power. Holy Spirit, deep conviction. And so as we go through this passage, Paul's experience here in Thessalonica was, reflects on those three weeks, is that when the gospel came, the gospel had considerable ability and effect upon you, and you were converted from your sin. He then describes it in another way. He says that, uh, he says, for our gospel did not only come to you in words only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Came in the Holy Spirit. We come to this third element of Paul's time on on mission in Thessalonica. Paul says and emphasizes here that it really required the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for God to do something in this place. And so, Uh, given a key place in this text, we see that the great cause of everything in the Thessalonians' amazing story is the Holy Spirit. I preached through 1 Thessalonians several years ago. I said that the Thessalonians' story started in the heart of God. Started in the heart of God. There would be no Thessalonians' story about people coming to know Jesus Christ apart from the divine work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we consider this, this phrase, come, it came with the Holy Spirit, we, we need to see that the Holy Spirit is, is important in our evangelism because it is only through his power that the gospel will be able to penetrate the mind, the heart, and the wills of unbelievers. For without the Holy Spirit, there would be no response to the gospel of Jesus Christ and absolutely no understanding of it. And so as we go through this passage, Paul's recalling this time. He says, the gospel came not only with words, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. And then he gets to the last one. You see there in verse 5, and with full conviction. Full conviction. Depending on what translation you have, it may say much assurance. Now, this last one requires a bit more effort on our part to figure out exactly what he means by full conviction. And really one of the questions I think we need to ask at this point is, who is who is being convicted or assured in this passage? And there really are only two answers. I like, you know, a test when you get two choices. But I always seem to, to choose the wrong one in cases like that. Hopefully we won't do that today. There are two choices as to the full conviction that Paul's talking about here. He may be describing the conviction that the Thessalonian believers felt in their own heart regarding the clear gospel message that Paul proclaimed to them. So it may be that, you know, as Paul's saying, he's talking about the way the Thessalonians were convicted regarding their sin. However, I think it's a little bit better to see that Paul's not describing that as much as he's describing the full conviction or assurance that the apostolic preachers had when they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city of Thessalonica. In other words, when Paul traveled down into Thessalonica and walked those streets, he had deep or profound conviction that God was going to do something. So I don't think that it's best to see this as a conviction in the hearers, but more the conviction in those who proclaimed the gospel. They were fully convinced that God was going to do something. One of the reasons I believe that is if you keep reading in verse 5, just keep reading in verse 5, 
very first part of the verse, my gospel came, not on, uh, came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. He continues then to, just, to talk about the way the preachers acted among them. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Again, I think that with that last phrase, full conviction, he's not describing the uh, conviction of the hearers, but the confidence of the preachers. Confidence of the preachers. Not the only person to take it this way. Victor Furnish Furnish says in his commentary, Paul had a great fullness of divine working at Thessalonica. Another commentator by the name of James Denny says, he agrees, and he says that Paul was aglow with Christian passion. Perhaps my favorite is D. Edmund Hebert who said this about this passage. He said, Paul had ample assurance of success at Thessalonica. Ample assurance of success. It's going to work. So this description speaks of Paul's personal confidence in the gospel. Paul's confidence and courage, however, are precisely what many Christians in America today lack in their views of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think, unfortunately, at times, the gospel might be limited in our contemporary churches in our efforts in evangelism, because we do not really believe that God is going to save those who we're witnessing to. In a sense, the gospel then is a little bit like a caged lion. Dale Moody used that illustration years ago. It's like a caged lion. The gospel's ready to go. It's pouncing back and forth, pacing back and forth. It's ready to go. It's ready to pounce. But for Moody, he said, the iron bars of doubt and fear and laziness Keep the gospel from advancing in our communities. This text, I'm especially pointing to the fact that Paul had this great, profound belief that God was going to do something in Thessalonica when he shared the gospel with those people. And so as we go through this passage, we see Paul's profound and deep faith. This this coming weekend, we have an amazing opportunity to consider more about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the potential that the gospel has in our own cities and neighborhoods and the nations. And it's my prayer, like the Apostle Paul that here, that, that God would stir our individual believers to have a heart for mission, a heart that would believe that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for anyone who believes whether that includes my neighbors in Virginia Beach or Chesapeake or Great Bridge or wherever you live, whether that includes my workplace, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to anyone who believes, including anyone in my workplace who would call upon the name of Jesus Christ, that God would give us this strong desire and belief in the work of the gospel of Jesus In verses 6 and 7, just very quickly, he he moves from the nature of his mission to the fruit of it. So the gospel came, it came in all those ways he just described, but then you see the fruit of Paul's mission in Thessalonica. Verse 6 says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Here, Paul describes four evidences of God's amazing work among the Thessalonians. And we can go very quickly through these evidences. 
So Paul gets there, he opens his mouth, he shares the gospel. It comes with power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. And then they became imitators of Jesus Christ. So the first evidence is they became followers of Christ. They became examples uh, of Jesus Christ. Secondly, in the middle part of verse 6, they were opposed by the world. Okay, so they became followers of Jesus Christ, although they were opposed by the world. And to save some time in our sermon this morning, we already read Acts chapter 17. And there we see that there were certain Jews who became jealous of the Apostle Paul and of his ministry, ministerial success, uh, demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah and that he would have to die. And so they stir up a rabble, a group of people, and they begin persecuting the church. I think that persecution not only drove Paul out of Thessalonica to Berea, but those people continued to hound the churches of Thessalonica as well. They continued to persecute the church. And so, as I'm describing evidences of God's work and the the nature of God's work here, we see they were opposed by the world. Then the middle of verse 6, and they were, uh, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. They were given joy by the Spirit of God. So I'm looking through verses 5 through 7, you see the Holy Spirit's very active here in Paul's church plant. He not only gave much assurance to the preachers in verse 5, here he gives joy, joy to the hearers, even though they're being persecuted. So that in verse 7, he says, you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The power, the, the gospel was so powerful and effective In Thessalonica, in those three weeks that Paul was there, these people were not only faithful in the midst of persecution and trial for Jesus Christ, they became models for other believers in Christ in two places. You see this at the end of verse 7. Two places, in Macedonia and Achaia. These are the two provinces that surrounded the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was actually the capital city of Macedonia in the north of northern Greece. Paul's writing this letter from uh, from Corinth, capital city of Achaia in the south. And uh, he he will further describe their powerful testimony in verses 8 through 10, but you'll have to come back this evening to hear that part. But the point I want to make here about the Thessalonians is the the gospel is so powerful in their life in the midst of much affliction and trial, they became models to believers all throughout these two provinces. People looked to them as faithful testimonies of the gospel's work in the lives of believers. So in other words, as we reflect upon verses six and seven, when the Thessalonian believers got saved, they really got saved. God did a significant work here. And the fruit of their conversion is so profoundly evident that the surrounding regions around them were impacted for the cause of Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul, as he writes 1 and 2 Thessalonians, has so many good memories of this time with the Thessalonian community. Their joy in the midst of conflict was sure evidence that God had called them and the gospel had changed them. 
And while there is much that we might emphasize regarding Paul on mission in Thessalonica, I end by asking whether you, like him, believe that the gospel works. Do you believe this? Most exciting summer of my life, I traveled with three men, uh, Will Galkin, Paul Valentine, and Matt Morell, three friends of mine, on the Cola War evangelistic team. It was an amazing summer where I interacted with thousands of teens and young people in a wide variety of way, ways. That summer, we saw many teens and children profess Christ for the very first time. I think there was something over 300, 325 professions of faith in Jesus Christ. We were in eight different uh, churches in eight weeks across the states of Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, and West Virginia, of all places. I ended up going uh, after that trip the next year to go and pastor, be a youth pastor at the same church in West Virginia that we visited. I wish I could recall all of the different testimonies of the young people who came to faith in Jesus Christ throughout that summer. But like most things in life, I find that my memory is terrible and I can't, I can't recall much of it. There is one young man, though, that I will never forget. His name was Sean, and I remember Sean because I knew him before this. Sean, before his conversion, was a Satanist. He was a rough dude. He wore all black, spikes all over his body. In the months that I knew Sean before the Cold War time and spending time with him, uh, there were two separate occasions I remember going to the hospital to visit him because he was having his stomach pumped because of being uh, overdosing on drugs. He'd been coming to a Bible study that we'd been doing on the, universe, or on the campus of UW Marinette. I remember one of the first Bible studies that I led that Sean came to, he brought with him a satanic Bible. As a young man in Bible college, I had no idea whatsoever what to do with that. I remember just a week or two before the Cold Awards evangelistic rally that we were going to have, Sean brought that satanic Bible and he gave it to me at one of those Bible studies and said he didn't need it. I remember at the end of one of the services, uh, there came a time for people to respond to the gospel invitation of one of the preachers. And as I was helping people near the end, I remember seeing the feet. First I saw his feet coming at me. I was kind of standing above him. So I saw his feet coming at me, and then I saw him, and I thought, I'm going to take this one. So I had the opportunity there to share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember explaining to him that he needed a Savior, and hearing him cry out to God to save him from his sin. You know, as I reflected on that summer many, many years ago now, as I reflected on that this morning, you know the greatest lesson I learned that summer was not how to be a great preacher. Still struggle there. It was not how to be funny in skits for teens. To this day, no one asked me to be in skits. They just stare at me blankly when I try to be funny. The greatest lesson I learned that summer in dealing with these teens, especially with Sean that day, was 
the gospel still works. It is not broken. The 2,000-year-old story of Jesus Christ who came and lived and died so that he might rise again, that message is from God. It's not just a message for Paul in Thessalonica thousands of years ago. It's not just a message that our grandparents or our parents proclaimed. It's a message for the church today. And if we are going to be a church on mission for the glory of God, we must believe that the gospel works. Let's pray together. Fathers, we consider this passage in Paul's hearty confidence in the gospel as a preacher of the gospel in Thessalonica. Lord, perhaps before the sermon, if, if asked the question, do you believe that the gospel has the power to save lives, save souls? We might answer with a yes. Lord, but often our lack of presentation of the gospel, our lack of opening our mouths to proclaim it to the lost, reveals, reveals that we really don't think that it will work. Lord, as a church, as we approach Mission Conference, I pray, Lord, this week that you would do a profound work again in our hearts. Would you remind us all individually of our needs to proclaim the gospel? And Lord, in that reminding, would you also stir within us a deeper more profound faith that would enable us to open our mouths and declare the most wonderful message the world will ever hear. And Lord, as we do this, I pray that we would have deep confidence and trust, knowing that you will use it by the power of the Holy Spirit to save some. Lord, we thank you for this and pray that you would continue to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.